You are listening to a Whitebridge Baptist Church sermon podcast. Well, I hope that this morning has already been a blessing to your heart, and as we're reminded that the the key to a victorious life in Christ, where freedom and joy and peace and every good thing is found, is in that idea and the truth of our need to surrender to Jesus Christ. And so today is going to be a wonderful day as we dig into the book of James chapter 4, and we look at the topic of what it means for us to submit ourselves to Christ. And we're privileged to have Chris Wettstein come and share the message with us this morning. I just want to share with you a little bit before he comes up that it's an honor to have Chris and Nancy and their children, Ben and Maya, part of our church family. And uh, over the last year and a half especially, they have been seeking out God's will for their life as a, as a family, how they can serve the Lord together. And uh, when I look at their lives, I do see a family that... Uh, submits themselves to God and wants to honor the Lord. And uh, they've been making connections in various places. And one of the places that they've uh, made some friends is at Bethesda Church. And they know the lead pastor there. They have a good relationship with him. And he's in need of help there. And uh, they have decided as a family that they are going to be making that their church home. And Chris is going to be serving there as an associate pastor in that role and, and helping the church over the whatever the future holds. And I know they have peace about that, and as friends we have peace for them. And uh, we're just honored that he can come and share a message with us this morning. We just ask you guys to all come up. We just want to pray with you before Chris shares the message this morning. So uh, please join with me in prayer. Father, I thank you so much for church family, and I thank you that you have designed us not only for a relationship with you, but for deep and everlasting relationship with everybody who has submitted their lives to you. And I thank you for the fact that uh, Chris and Nancy and Ben and Maya decide to uh, desire to serve you uh, in Bethesda Church. And we ask for your blessing on them as they go to that church family, develop new relationships, strengthen ones that have already started. We ask for your blessing on them as a family, that you just help them to see the ways that you want to use them to be an encouragement to the church family there, and that you also encourage and lift them up by the people that they will come to know deeper and deeper as every day passes. So we ask for your blessing on them. We ask for your provision for them. We ask, Lord, that you continually help their eyes to be set on you, the initiator and perfecter of their faith. And we thank you for the blessing we've had of knowing them and of being able to continue relationship even after uh, they, they uh, go to Bethesda, that we can have good relationship with each other and honor you together. In the precious name of Jesus, amen. Let's give him a hand. All right, thank you once again. And again, my uh, family thanks you very much for your prayers as we enter into this new stage of life and ministry at Bethesda. Uh, we still consider this our church family at this point, and, uh, and we look forward to continuing good relationships with uh, so many of you. Our uh, scripture reading today is in James chapter 4. If you have your Bible, please turn with me to James chapter 4. We're looking at verses 1 to 12. 
And as it's kind of a white ridge tradition now, let's stand together for the reading of God's word. In James chapter 4, he says, What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire but do not have, so you kill. You covet but cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. And when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think that Scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit that he has caused to dwell in us? But he gives us more grace. And that is why Scripture says God opposes the proud, but shows favor, grace to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister judges them and speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of his word. Amen. You may be seated. This morning, as we look at this message from James in chapter 4, we see that God is speaking to us in this passage. The God of all creation, the God of heaven and earth, is speaking to us about our relationships with one another and about the condition of our souls. James speaks here in chapter 4 about what causes conflicts and quarrels in our relationships with one another. What causes relationships to break down, even among Christians? What causes two Christians or two groups of Christians sometimes to be in conflict with each other, to fight with each other? James shows what the cause of Christian conflict ultimately is. And at the same time, he doesn't just rebuke, he doesn't just leave us with a stern warning, but he also declares that God gives grace to the humble. He gives us more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. There's good news in this message. The God who has made us, who is jealous for us, who has pursued us, who has sent Christ for us, this God is a God of grace, and He shows us the way in which we can live by His grace. He shows us what we must do then if we would live in the way 
of grace in the way that God brings healing then to our hearts and to our relationships. So if you're a young person here this morning, as I know there's no uh, Sunday school, I believe, is that right? There's more young people than usual, at least today. Think about how you get along with your brother or your sister at home. Do you ever fight with them? Do you ever quarrel, get in arguments with your brother or sister or with your mom or your dad? What causes that when you fight with your brother or sister or your mom or dad? What causes that? What can you do to fix that? Thinking here of married people, as I prepared this message for some time, I can think of a, a very sad situation. Uh, friends of ours, both believers, are headed down a road towards divorce. What counsel could I give? What can they do? What can we do to protect our marriages from getting to that point of view? From What can we do to keep ourselves from falling into conflicts and quarrels and unreconciled relationships? What can we do as a church? What can White Ridge do? I think that there's so much good that's happening right now. The uh, mission of White Ridge is to nurture disciples of Jesus through healthy relationships. Very simple phrase, right? Nurturing disciples of Jesus through healthy relationships. I see that um, so clearly in how the pastors um, are in how they relate to the congregation and how they nurture. And there's a nurturing environment, not only among the pastors, but so many who are in leadership roles here in the church and so many who are active members here. There's a nurturing environment. There's healthy relationships here. I'm sure it's not perfect. I don't see into your (laughs) secret lives. I don't see all the conversations that go on behind closed doors. But what can White Ridge do as a church to prevent there from being this destructive influence that James talks about, conflicts and quarrels and dissension and destructive relationships? Well, God shows us. He gives us wisdom from heaven in his word here today. Something that applies to our family relationships, our marriages, our church family relationships as well. The first thing that James does is he points to the the source, the ultimate problem. You see, the ultimate problem is not just that people have different opinions. It's one thing to have a different point of view about something. Where you want to go for a holiday, for example. (laughs) Husband and wife can have a different point of view. Where do you want to go to this year? Um, In a church, you can disagree about more significant things. What should the building look like? Where should we be? Should we build a building? Should we stay here? Uh, What should the building look like? How big should it be? How much money should we put into it? There's all kinds of different opinions that could be presented. And it's not sinful to have different opinions, different points of view. That's not the ultimate problem here. You see, James is distinguishing between you know, having different points of view versus what causes conflict and quarreling and damaging relationships. What is it that causes a brother and sister not just to disagree about what channel they should watch, but start pushing and shoving each other and saying mean things? What causes a husband and wife not just to disagree about money or whatever, raising their kids, but start to have bitterness and conflict? James says it ultimately comes down to our desires, our selfish desires. 
What causes fights and quarrels among you? Verse 1. Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? Even as Christians, as long as we live in this world until we're glorified in the presence of Jesus, we will always have conflicted desires battling within us. And so the point is to look at your own heart. Don't look at your relationship out there and say, it's that person over there, it's that person and their opinions and their misunderstanding. That's the problem. Look within your heart and realize that there's a battle within your own heart. And that's where the battle needs to be won, first of all, before you would ever resolve a conflict with another person. Look within your own heart. Don't all these problems come from your desires, your pleasures, some translations refer to, because it's desire for pleasure. That's the idea. Or your passions, or your cravings that are battling within you. Now, there are two ways James points out that our selfishness becomes obvious. There are two ways that our selfish, our self-centered desires become manifest. First of all, in the way that we relate to one another, he says, you kill, you quarrel and fight. He says, your desire, you desire something you don't have, so you're unfulfilled, right? We all know what it feels like to have an unfulfilled desire, but then that leads you to kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. And so you're frustrated. You can't get what you want. And so you just keep at it, quarreling and fighting. And the way that we relate to one another, James says then, is pointing out a problem in our desires. When he says you kill, I don't think he's talking about literal, physical murder. There are no churches in the first century that I know of where they had this membership problem where the members were literally, physically murdering one another. But remember what Jesus said. In Matthew chapter 5, even if you hate your brother, even if you say in a hurtful way, you fool, you're guilty. You're guilty of that same principle of murder from the heart, right? And so it's our desires within us. We're unfulfilled. We're not satisfied with the way our marriage is going. We're not satisfied with the way our spouse is to us. And we take that and we say something critical. We say something hurtful. We're not satisfied with the pastor or the preacher. We're not satisfied with the program at church. We have unfulfilled desires. We can't get what we want. We can't get the kind of program, the kind of style that we want, or what have you. And then we quarrel and fight to try to get our way. And we say things behind people's backs trying to get our way because we're unfulfilled. You see, a heart that's not happy in God, a heart that's not truly satisfied in the Lord, is a heart then that lashes out towards others in the way that we speak. We try to bring other people down to try to get our own way. Proverbs 18 verse 21 says that the tongue has the power of life and death. Do you realize that? In the spiritual realm, the words that come from your tongue have power to give life and grace to people around you. Or they have the power of death, power to tear people down, tear churches down, tear pastors down, tear families down, tear marriages down, and bring death to such relationships. 
The tongue is a power of life and death. And so, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And if you are then harboring these unfulfilled, dissatisfied desires in your heart, beware of that. That's where the battle begins. That's where we must deal with the battle, in our own hearts. If we're ever going to fix our relationships with other people. Secondly then, James points out that it's also revealed in our prayerlessness or in how we pray in a self-centered way. He goes on to say that not only do we kill and quarrel and fight in relation to others, but he says you don't have because you don't ask God. Or you ask, but you don't receive because you ask with wrong motives because you want to spend what you get on your pleasures. And so there are people on one hand who just never pray or rarely pray. And that shows there's something wrong in their heart. They're a self-centered, self-governed, self-led person. They don't need to pray about the church and the decisions of the church. They know the way that the church should be. They know what the building should be. They know what the church leadership should decide. And they're going to go to the meetings and they're going to have their way. They don't pray about it. And they don't have because they don't ask God. Or they pray and they put on a facade. They go and they pray at the prayer meetings about the decisions of the church. Or they pray about their marriage regularly and they tell their close friends and they, their close confidence, oh, you know, my marriage has these problems and these problems and let's pray about that. And they pray about their marriage. But they're praying ultimately out of this self-centered point of view. Because if my husband or wife would only change, if God would just change them, then I'd be happier. Because if my church did things my way, then I know that I would be happier and my kids would be happier and it's all about me and my kingdom. You see, this is not just about praying for Cadillac, praying for the lottery, praying to get what you get and spend it on your pleasures. But whatever it is that you want in life, you want a perfect marriage, you want a perfect church, you want perfect health and wealth and happiness and whatever that means to you, you can pray about these things, but still ultimately be a self-centered person. And so, that's not the way of healing. It's not the way that resolves anything. Just praying about it won't help if your prayers still come from this self-centered point of view. And so, this is the problem that James presents us with. That we have self-centered desires, desires for personal pleasure which are greater desires warring in our soul than our desire for God and His kingdom and His glory. And James has this heavy rebuke. Let us look at it just briefly. We won't spend a lot of time looking at the rebuke because it's heavy. We need to move on. But look what he says. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. He's saying here that when you speak and you act and you live in this way of selfishness and you speak and you act and you live in this way seeking your own fulfillment before others and the good of others and you contribute to an atmosphere of quarreling and complaining and conflict, if you live in that way, you are an adulterer spiritually because you're trying to find pleasure in a source other than God who is to be your spouse alone. You are friends with the world because you're becoming like the world. The world operates that way. It's about me and my way. 
And that is the way of enmity against God. You will never find what you're looking for. You'll never find true peace, true fulfillment, true joy in Christ if you continue in that way. And so that's why that rebuke is heavy. James is aware that this is about preserving the life of the church, preserving marriages, preserving the glory of God in our relationships. And so he lays down that heavy rebuke about spiritual adultery and friendship with the world and enmity with God. But then he goes on to say, God gives us more grace. God doesn't just rebuke us through his word, but he gives us more grace. It would be grace already for God just to say, here's the problem. It would be grace already just to stop at verse 5 and say, look, God rebukes us graciously for our good. But he gives us more grace. And he says that God opposes the proud but shows grace to the humble. What's he mean when he says God opposes the proud but shows grace to the humble? Whenever we see that word grace in the Bible, we should think about the gospel of grace. The good news that Jesus Christ has come. The Prince of Peace has come. We should think about His death for our sins, His resurrection. The good news that while we were yet sinners and enemies of God, Christ loved us and gave Himself for us. That is where we find the grace of God. But you see, when, he's, when James says, God opposes the proud and shows grace to the humble, he doesn't mean that God looks out in the world and he sees two kinds of people. People who are naturally proud and people who are naturally humble. And he says, I love the humble people and I'll send Jesus to die just for the humble people. No, James is not talking about how we become Christians and how God begins to show grace to us while we were yet sinners, while we were yet proud enemies. God's grace is unconditional from the standpoint of God's election, His choice of us before the creation of the world. God's grace towards us, believers, is unconditional in terms of His choice to send Christ to us while we were yet enemies. God's grace to us is unconditional while we were yet enemies, not thinking about God, not pursuing God. God's grace was unconditional when He sent the gospel to you. When He opened your heart by His Holy Spirit, when He caused you to be born again, it wasn't because you were humble already. It wasn't because you were already naturally humble that God set His love upon you and sent Christ for you and sent His Holy Spirit into your hearts and caused you to be born again and gave you newness of life and forgiveness of sins. No, it was in spite of your pride. But what James is talking about here when he says that God gives grace to the humble in distinction from opposing the proud, he's talking about God's ongoing fatherly care for us. He's talking about the ongoing Christian life here. And that's what we are to consider today. God, in His ongoing fatherly care for us, from the beginning of your Christian journey to the end of your Christian journey when you're with Jesus in the end, God will oppose you when you're proud and God will give grace to you, help, favor added to you when you humble yourself in the sight of the Lord. Think of the life story of Peter to illustrate this, okay? Think of Peter. Was he already naturally a humble person? No, he had many inconsistencies and many examples of pride speaking quickly to his shame. Think of Peter walking with Jesus before the cross. 
Peter spoke with pride to Jesus on one occasion when he said, even if everybody else leaves you, I will never leave you. Peter thought he was stronger than all the other disciples, and he spoke in his pride, and Jesus opposed Peter to his face. And Jesus rebuked Peter in his pride, and Jesus allowed Peter to fall into those consequences. That embarrassment of denying Jesus three times, Peter fell hard after he exerted his pride, right? Jesus opposed Peter in his pride, but then Peter was humbled. And in tears, he came to repentance for what he did in denying Jesus. And after the resurrection, Jesus came in his risen glory and he restored Peter. And Jesus gave grace to Peter when he was humbled. That's the story of Peter's life. That's the story of all of us. God opposes the proud. He lets us fall into consequences when we walk in pride. He lets us fall in our pride, but he gives grace to us, to his children, when we're humbled. And Peter was given grace when he was humbled to be the great preacher in the day of Pentecost and afterwards. But again, later on, Peter became proud. He started becoming proud of his Jewishness, spending more time with his Jewish friends, and he had to be opposed by God and by the Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 1. Peter was opposed when he was contributing to a divisive atmosphere between Jews and Gentiles. Peter was opposed when he was not walking as he ought to. Peter would have to live out this journey again of being humbled before the Apostle Paul and before others and before God. And that's the story of the Christian life. It is by grace that we're saved, even in spite of the fact that we're not naturally humble. It's by grace that God pursues us, but then when he has taken us into the new covenant relationship, when he has taken us into union with Christ, then he teaches us to walk in humility. And when we rise up in our pride, he opposes us. And when we humble ourselves before God, he's pleased and he gives us favor and grace and blessing. And so then, how are we to live as children of God? Not thinking that our Eternal salvation depends on our humility. Not thinking that we're going to lose our salvation, but how do we walk in right fellowship with God if God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble? There are these seven commandments given. We're going to just look at them briefly, but look at what James says in verse 6 to 12. Verse 7 to 12, really. The first commandment is, Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. We're going to sing at the end of the service, humble thyself in the sight of the Lord and he will exalt you. Part of humbling yourself before God is submitting yourself, submitting your will to his will, that means. When you realize that there are conflicting desires in your heart, you want your own way, you want to assert yourself, you want to say what's on your mind, even if it's hurtful, submit yourself to God. The ultimate example of submitting your will to the will of God is Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane saying, not my will, but your will, Father. Let your will be done. Jesus teaches us how to submit ourselves to God every day. As often as we pray, we should pray according to the pattern of the Lord's Prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Let your kingdom come. Let your will be done. Pray through those opening lines of the Lord's Prayer. That's how you submit yourself to God. When you think of matters of the church, matters in your marriage, 
matters in relationships that are important. God, may your name be hallowed in this relationship. May your name be exalted in my marriage, in my church family, in this upcoming business meeting, or what have you. Submit yourselves to God by caring about His glory, His kingdom, and His will before your will. Again, if we submit ourselves to God, we'll try to line up our desires with His desires, and we will learn to accept what He gives us in His providence. Job shows submission to God in this sense when his whole family, his children were killed. Job, in humility, he submitted himself to God, saying, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That is the heart of submission to God. Submitting to his desires, as we pray through the Lord's Prayer, we pray what he desires, that that would be our desires, and we submit and accept what he gives us in his providence. God, you have given me this marriage. I'm not going to break this covenant bond. I'll submit myself to you. God, you've given me this church family, and I'm not going to run away from my church family and just become a church shopper, a church hopper. Submit yourselves to God, what he gives you in his providence, and what is his will and his desires. That's how we submit ourselves to God, through prayer and through acceptance of what he gives. Furthermore, he says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. You see, a humble person is not a weak person. At the same very same time that we humble ourselves and, res- and submit to God, we can resist the devil then in the strength of Christ, knowing that he will flee. What does it mean to resist the devil? It means resist the temptations of the devil. The devil wants you to be self-centered, assert yourself, get what you want, do whatever it takes to get your desires to pass. Resist the devil in that sense. Resist the temptation to go your own way as the devil goes his own way. Resist the devil in the sense of what is it that the devil wants you to do. The devil wants you to gossip. You know the root word gossip in the Greek has to do with being a devil, diabolos. The the root word in the Greek to be a gossip, a slanderer, is to be a devil speaker. Resist the devil when you're tempted to slander and to speak hurtfully, knowing that that's what the devil wants you to do. Resist him in that, and he will flee from you. Resist the devil as he wants you to hold on to feelings of unforgiveness. You have broken relationships around you that you know of. It's a temptation to to dwell on those hurt feelings, dwell on those feelings of abused, wounded pride. Resist the devil in his desire to make you unforgiving. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2, there was a member who sinned against Paul and against the church, and then he was restored, and Paul made it clear, if there's anything to forgive, I have forgiven in the sight of Christ, he writes in 2 Corinthians 2, verse 10, in order that Satan may not outwit us. I am forgiving this person. I am publicly writing it in Scripture, making it known to the church. This person is forgiven, and I'm doing this so that Satan will not outwit us. The devil wants to tear down Christian relationships, Christian community, by making unforgiveness normal and making feelings of unforgiveness stick around for a long time. And so this is how we resist the devil, by forgiving freely those who have offended us. Forgiving from the heart. 
So we are to resist the devil in all of his ways of temptation, knowing he'll flee from you. Just as surely as the devil fleed from Christ and the devil trembles at the name of Jesus Christ, the devil knows that there's nothing that can separate us from the love of Christ, not even demons can separate us from the love of Christ. Therefore, the devil trembles when we submit ourselves to God and we submit to the Lord Jesus Christ and we resist the devil, we can know we will overcome. It might not feel instantaneous that we instantly know the devil is gone, but the time will come he leaves. And he can only walk as he does on a short leash. And so then we are to submit ourselves to God, resist the devil and all the temptations of the devil. That is how we take upon ourselves our responsibility. He goes on to say then a number of words that we can group together. He says that we should draw near to God and God will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. And he talks about mourning and weeping and turning your joy into sadness. What is all of this about? Let's group that all together for now for our purposes this morning and see that we're called to cultivate a heart of repentance. Cultivate attitudes of repentance. True repentance is something that should continue through the Christian life. If we're ever going to have restored relationships with one another, healthy marriages, healthy church relationships, we need to have this attitude of repentance that involves drawing near to God, cleansing our hearts and our minds and our actions, and weeping and mourning in a godly way. You see, this is a lot of the language of the Old Testament priesthood that James brings to mind. and He colors this exhortation with this language. Drawing near to God and cleansing, washing your hands and cleansing your heart. This is what the priests would do when they went to the temple, to the holy place. And it was an attitude of daily repentance. As long as the Old Testament temple stood... The priests would go there every day. They would offer sacrifices every day. They would wash their hands and purify themselves every day. They would draw near to the holy place every day, knowing God draws near to them according to his promise. And they would cultivate this heart of acknowledging, confessing sin. And this is what we do as Christians every day. We don't have an earthly temple that we go to, but we're all priests. We all go through the blood of Jesus. Therefore, since we have such a high priest who is in the true holy place, let us draw near the throne of grace with full assurance. If, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. That's how we wash our hands and purify and cleanse our hearts. That is how we draw near to God. It's through confessing Jesus as our Savior every day. Confessing Jesus as the one who forgives us. Going to him for fresh forgiveness every day. We need to cultivate this way of drawing near to God for cleansing, humbling ourselves in the sense of having godly mourning. Of course, when he says mourn and turn your laughter to mourning, you could take that in an improper way. Grieve, mourn, wail, change your laughter to mourning, your joy to gloom. James is not denying that we're to rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. James says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you're in various trials. He says that in chapter 1, so he's not denying himself. He's not denying Scripture. Rejoice in the Lord. But when you think of your broken relationships, don't just glance over that in a superficial way. Mourn over those relationships that are broken. You might not be able to fix 
your marriage today or tomorrow. In this side of the resurrection, in the end, you might not be able to fix your marriage perfectly. You might not be able to fix all of your church relationships perfectly. But you can mourn over it, even as Jesus mourns. Jesus would mourn over Jerusalem, seeing their rejection of him, seeing that unreconciled relationship between Jerusalem and Jesus. He wept and he mourned. And so it should be with us whenever we think of any unreconciled relationship, it should cause mourning. Don't be flippant about it. Don't be lighthearted in the wrong way, making jokes about a broken marriage, making jokes about a broken church, making jokes about such things that grieve the heart of God, but mourn even as God mourns. That's the context of this command in verse 9. Grieve, mourn, and wail over the brokenness Christian relationships that have broken down. Change your laughter into mourning, your joy to gloom. Rejoice in the Lord that He is the Lord over all and He will see His purposes succeed in the end. But at the same time, when you see brokenness, when you see sin in your own heart, mourn over your sin. When you see yourself committing the same sin again and again, grieve that, mourn that, and yet by faith trust the Lord. Humble yourselves before the Lord and He will lift you up. You see, it's not ending in a negative, it's ending with the good news. He will lift you up then. Humble thyself in the sight of the Lord and He will lift you up. And that is the perspective that James gives us then in relationship to God then. He closes this section saying, there is only one lawgiver and judge, the one God who is able to save and destroy. And the final command then is, brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Where the rubber meets the road is verse 11. Brothers and sisters, don't speak against one another. If you've humbled yourself in the sight of God, you are going to be very careful what you say pertaining to broken Christian relationships, pertaining to brothers and sisters who have offended you. Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Do not speak down against another brother or sister. Because if you do that, you're not humbling yourself before God. If you are speaking against your brother or sister, you're judging the law, speaking against the law, because the law says love your neighbor as yourself. Love your brother or sister. Do what is in their best interest. That's the law of God. And if you're not, if you are speaking against your brother or sister, you're saying, oh, that commandment about love, that's not really that important. That's what you're saying, in effect. And you're acting as if you're greater than God. You are full of pride. You are full of selfishness. You're full of arrogance. If Whenever you speak Damaging words, slanderous words against a brother or sister. And so let us humble ourselves before this, in the sight of God. The scripture closes with that. Let us know then, in closing, that there is one lawgiver who gives us this law today. There is one judge who will judge us, giving grace to us who are humble, opposing us when we're proud. There is one lawgiver and judge. He is able to save you, your soul. He's able to save your marriage. He's able to save your church relationships. He's able to save families. He's able to destroy also when people walk in pride. He can take a candlestick and do it as as he wishes in the book of Revelation. He can put out churches. He can leave us to our own ends. He is able to save and destroy. And so let us humble ourselves in the sight of the Lord and trust that he will lift us up for his name's sake and for his kingdom and for his glory. Let's pray. Father, even as we sing at the close of the service, let us humble ourselves in the sight of the Lord, in the sight of you. 
We thank you, Lord, that you are our lawgiver and judge. You are able to save and destroy. You are the one who is on the throne of heaven and earth. So, Lord, may the words that we say to you now be consistent with the words that we say about others, even as we leave the service. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I invite you to stand with us.